All right, guys, let's get started because I have a lot of things I'd like to, to talk about tonight, and some of them are not um, some of them are not just scriptural. They're they're a little bit of my story. Um, I would tell you, and I'm saying this up front so that people that watch too will know um, to stick around. Uh, some of what I want to get into tonight are, are some things I need to release in my own life about my journey, my story, my experience in ministry and particularly in Pentecost. And the reason I need to release it is because you can't hold on to the, to the where you've been. And I have for too long in some ways. And in other ways, I have let go of it, but I didn't wrestle with why. And I didn't wrestle to replace it. And I'm learning through the Holy Spirit that part of what Pentecost is about is burning up what needs burned up, but not leaving it there. It's burning it up so that you can cultivate something new. It's not about, I'm just getting rid of my past. It's about, I'm getting rid of something so that my hand is free, so that I can grip what the Spirit wants to say to me today. And that doesn't mean I'm going to grip that forever because we, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Proceeding words means not the word that proceeded from the mouth of God, but the words that proceed continually from the mouth of God. So I'm not living just on a word. I got both hands on a word, and then I'm going to stay there for 40 years. No, none of us need to do that. I have a word for today, and I feel like the Holy Spirit continues to speak words. And I mean, he continues to say things as your life changes, as your seasons change. Those are the words that proceeds, proceed from the mouth of God. And so I got to get some things out and I got to lay them down. And I've had to talk to the Lord about it. And I've had to, I don't have to ask the Lord to forgive me. I don't have to ask the Lord to take it away. He has done that. He has taken it away. But we have to release things. So sometimes we go to the Lord and say, Father, forgive me for what I did. It's not because God's withholding forgiveness, waiting on you. Because if you don't say it, he's not going to do it. No, it's because if you don't articulate it and confess it, sometimes you keep holding it like it's yours. Same thing with unforgiveness. Some of you might need to, and by you, I mean maybe you in the room, but maybe you watching or listening. There might be some things you need to forgive God for. Now, don't, don't kick me out with that statement. That sounds sacrilegious. That's a heretic, right? <laughs> you need to forgive God, not because God did anything wrong, but because... Forgiveness isn't for the person you're forgiving, it's for you. And sometimes you need to release things and say, Father, I, I forgive you. At that moment in my life, I was disappointed. At that moment in my life, I was let down. I blamed you. I know you didn't do it, but I forgive because I have to let go and I have to move on. There's some of that. How do we get all that from Pentecost? Well, I get all that from Pentecost because his fan is in his hand. And he thoroughly purges his floor. And I see this big fan in the hand of Jesus purging the, the, the floor of the wheat and the chaff. And the fire of God is burning up what doesn't belong. And that is the core of the Pentecostal experience. And I don't want to talk to you tonight about church doctrine. I don't want to talk to you tonight about a way of worship or a style of preaching. That's not what I'm talking about when I mention Pentecost. Though I'm going to get into a little bit of that because I got to from my own story. But I want to show you the church at the church transformed by Pentecost. 
As we talk about the church, we'll go through Acts left to right. And as we do, we watch the church go through these seasons of transformation. Some of these are transformations due to their circumstances. They're figuring things out. They're realizing something doesn't work, so they try something else. Sometimes their circumstances are forced upon them. They're thrown into jail. They're imprisoned. They're cast off to a, fo- to a far land. And they have to adjust. Sometimes their circumstances are changed by the Holy Spirit himself. He intervenes. He speaks. He moves. The wind blows over their soul. The embers flame up. And things happen. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is one of those moments. The most famous moment probably in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 2, where the day of Pentecost fully comes. I want to read for you the first four verses of Acts 2. I want to read for you a couple of verses from the end of the story of Acts 2. Because I want to, and then we're going to work the, the ground in between tonight a little bit. And I will tell you, we're not going to read Acts 2 verse by verse tonight, okay? So don't freak out. It's a long one. We're not going to do that. Um, we we're, going to, we're going to talk about some of it. We're not going to read it all. But I do want to read these four verses. Watch the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, if you don't understand Pentecost, what that means, relax. We're going to help you out in a minute, all right? For now, let's, let's, let it, let's just read the story. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues. The old King James says, cloven tongues like fire. Cloven, split, which would have spoke to a Jew of clean animals. Because Jewish animals had cloven hooves. If it wasn't cloven, they couldn't eat it. So if it was going to touch their tongue, I know this is... Sidebar, if it's going to touch their tongue, needs to be cloven. From a Jewish standpoint, all right, that's all illusory, but I'll leave it there. Cloven tongues, divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That means the Holy Spirit began to speak up through them. I skip Peter's sermon. We'll talk about it. I skip the action that's going on outside the upper room. We'll talk about it. I go down to Acts 2.40. This is right at the end of his message. With many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's the final part of his sermon. 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so we have at the conclusion of the Peter sermon on the day of Pentecost, gladly those that receive... They receive about, and there's a, about approximately 3,000 people that receive Christ. Let's talk a little bit about some of this as an experience. I want you to know, first of all, that Jesus is the baptizer with fire. Jesus in Acts 1 told them, as John indeed baptized you with water, simple, John put you in the water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now, Acts 1.5. What happens in Acts 2? Day of Pentecost, here comes a rushing mighty wind. Everyone receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to speak up through them. And what's the immediate effect? Peter stands up, preaches his first real sermon of his life. And at the end of his sermon, about 3,000 people accept Christ. This is a pretty remarkable moment. The church had 120 members. And then it had 3,120 members. And the most explosive moment of growth probably in the history of the church happens right there as far as a percentage of people that were following Christ. Uh, and it all happens because of the Holy Spirit. And this, this, this is a great historical event. But if it's just a historical event, then it's just a story. 
So we get done tonight and go, well, that was interesting. Was, you know, they had a good time with the Holy Ghost. What's that mean for me? To me, Pentecost means we don't have to just talk about God anymore. I love talking about God. That's theology. I, I'm a theology fan. When you go get your degree in theology, you better enjoy it or it's a rough experience. I enjoyed it. I love talking about God. But to be very honest, I am not a follower of Jesus because I talk about God. If all I had was to talk about God, I wouldn't follow Jesus. Pentecost guarantees that we get to do more than talk about God, we get to experience God. Pentecost is the internalization of everything Jesus said he was. He said, I'm gonna leave, but I'm not gonna leave you comfortless. I'm gonna give you the comforter. He's gonna come and he's gonna walk alongside of you. Jesus even said, I'm gonna give you another comforter, which means what the Holy Spirit will be to the church is what Jesus was to the disciples. Let me say that again. What the Holy Spirit is to the church is what Jesus was to his disciples. And so just as they had Jesus with them, we have the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit, the very essence of who God is, is the reason why we don't just talk about God, but the reason why we have an experience of God. So what was Pentecost actually doing? Pentecost, as an event in the book of Acts, is the infant church honoring the traditions of their fathers. That's the Jewish feast day, which we'll talk about because Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. So they're in Jerusalem and they're honoring that Jewish feast day by gathering. They are also obeying the voice of their founder. Their founder is Jesus. The reason I say they're obeying is in Acts. He told them, tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the father. Don't leave Jerusalem until you get it. They didn't even know what it was. They just knew something was going to happen. And I think they were smart enough to know it was probably going to happen on a Jewish feast day. And it was probably going to happen on Pentecost, though Jesus didn't say it. And I'm going to talk in a moment about why they were pretty confident that it was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. And they had to remain flexible to, a new, to new interpretations. They had to allow the Holy Spirit to change the way they thought about that day, to change the way they thought about Scripture, and to change the way they thought about God. I tried to use three Fs there. Their fathers, their founder, and their flexible. I know you really, it was really important to do that. Um, focus only on the events of Pentecost as formula, and you're going to miss the greatest contribution of the Pentecostal story, which is we get to experience the invisible God. So if all you do when you read, and I'm saying this from experience, if all you do when you read Acts 2 is try to figure out what they did so you can do it, what they prayed so you can pray it, how they acted so you can act that way, and what they did when they got the Holy Ghost, and then you need to do that, that'll prove you got the Holy Ghost, then you miss the forest for the trees. Because what you're doing is you're specializing in the formulas and the form, and you're missing the function of Pentecost. You're missing the fact that what they went from, I want to take you to this, think about how dark this is. This moment of this 10 days of darkness. They have Jesus with them every day. That's amazing. They watch Jesus die on a cross. They have three days of absolute abject poverty of spirit. They are depressed. And then Jesus walks through the wall and they go, whoa, we're in a new world. Jesus has touched my nail scars. You know the story. And they hang out with Jesus for 40 days, off and on. Sometimes he's with them, sometimes he's not. He shows up on the beach and has breakfast with them. He talks to them about the scriptures. He breaks bread with them. They're eating with him again. This is amazing. And then he disappears. Right before he disappears, goes up into the heavens, he goes, 
Go stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to give you the promise that I told you about my entire ministry. You're ready for it now. Go wait for it. You're going to receive it. And then boom, he's gone. And then for 10 days, nothing as they wait. Now they're good Jewish boys. And the good Jewish boy can stretch his heritage all the way back to the beginning of this book to about right there, Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. Abraham believed God was counting him for righteousness. Out of Abraham comes the sons of Abraham, comes their tribes. They can trace their lineage all the way back. They got temples and lambs and priests and sacrifices and tithes and geography. They got the promise of heaven on the earth in the form of the temple. And then Jesus comes and it's all wrapped up in one man. Boom, human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it disappears. And these are a people who have cut their spiritual teeth on the miraculous on the visible God of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and the Lamb's blood and the sacrifice. And then Jesus disappears and all of it, he tells them all of it's going to disappear with him. He goes, your temple's going to come down. You're not going to need any more sacrifice. Pentecost is the moment where the Holy Spirit they saw in Jesus and they felt in Jesus comes into them. And they knew it was real because it was the same thing they felt when they looked in Jesus' eyes when he was walking with them. And what I've often imagined is that when the disciples walked with Jesus and sat next to Jesus and talked to Jesus and the sound of his voice washed over their soul, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like the one soldier said, never has a man spoken like this man. And as they heard him, it was like cool water to a parched soul. And then they would go to town to buy bread. And while they were gone, it felt like God was a million miles away. Because if you get used to standing next to that cool water of Jesus, and then you go into town and Jesus stays at the well to talk to the woman. Can you imagine the chasm of going to market without Jesus? No, you can't imagine it. And you know why you can't imagine it? Because you're living in a post-Pentecost world where you have the Holy Spirit every second of your life. When you accept Christ, you have an identification of His and you can't imagine what it would feel like to not have His presence. But they knew because they lived in that world where when Jesus went left and they went right, they felt like Jesus went left and they went right. And then came Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit entered every one of them. And I think they made eye contact in that room and went, this is what it felt like when Jesus was here. And that's why Peter's first words are, this is that. That was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He goes, this is everything we all waited for. We were asking stupid questions of Jesus 10 days ago going, when are you going to give us the kingdom? And what we didn't realize is this is what he was going to give us. This is way better than thrones and majesties and beating up Caesar and overthrowing Rome. This is a whole new way of living. This is a whole new way of functioning. And that's why Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost that floors the congregation, floors the audience, because come, uh, come rushing out of him is this power of Pentecost, this power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why uh, do I say that they're actually kind of reaching back into their what I said a moment ago there, honoring the traditions of their fathers. Why? Because it's a Jewish feast. Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. It's a word that doesn't show up in your English Old Testament because your English Old Testament is translated from Hebrew. And Hebrew doesn't have a word Pentecost. Your Old Testament calls it the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And the Feast of Weeks are seven weeks after the Passover, after the Passover Sabbath, seven weeks and a day, 
the, that's seven times seven, 49 days, plus the next day, 50. The Sunday after the seventh week's Passover, or uh, Sabbath day from Passover, is the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of the Harvest. Your Septuagint, your Greek New Old Testament, actually calls it Pentecost in the Old Testament because it's 50 days, Feast of Weeks. But here's the most important thing about it. 50 days after the Passover is the time that Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and God gives him the law, what we call the Old Covenant. And so 50 days after the Passover comes the first Pentecost where God gives the law from heaven on two tables of stone and hands it to Moses and Moses brings it down the mountain. And you know that story. What you might have forgotten is that when they get down to the bottom of the mountain, Israel's worshiping a golden calf and committing sin and atrocities like crazy. And Moses comes down with the fire of God in his eyes and he's frustrated with the Israelites. And this happens in Exodus 32, verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained because Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. 27. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. This is pretty dark. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. I think this is actually a very telling line right here. They did according to the word of Moses, because I think even the sons of Levi had an idea that it might not have actually been the word of the Lord. But they do according to the word of Moses and about how many people? About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now I want to point out that about 3,000 men of the people fell on what day? On the day Moses came down from bringing the law, the first Pentecost, 50 days after the first Passover, 3,000 people fall at the hands of the law. It won't be the first person, the last person rather, to fall at the hands of the law. Paul, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, would call the law the ministry of death. Where does he get that? Because it tends to suck the life out of you. Put instructions and commands in front of people and you suck the life out of them. That's a good allegory for this. What, Paul, what, what happens in Acts 2? Those who gladly received Peter's message were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is not a coincidental, in, this is not an accident. I also want you to notice it's not an exact number. In the book of Exodus, it's about 3,000 people died. So what happens when Peter preaches the first message at Pentecost is, quote unquote, about 3,000 people are saved. This is no accident for the Jewish writer of the book of Acts, Luke. Uh, and it's no accident for those standing there on the day of Pentecost to realize that at the first Pentecost, 3,000 people died because the law came. And on a new Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved because the Spirit comes. And what would they have thought? This is a brand new day. Pentecost ain't what it used to be. And if Pentecost ain't what it used to be, then the message isn't what it used to be. And maybe it's not about the law anymore. Maybe it's about something else. Now that's going to take them a while in the book of Acts. Because just because you have a Pentecostal experience, just because you have a revelation of who God is, just because you have an identity of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you start getting everything right. 
Okay. doesn't mean you start nailing stuff right and left. Or you, you should believe them because they've, they've had an experience with the Holy Spirit. No, the early church doesn't understand everything that's going on, but they're smart enough to make the correlation that if 3,000 died on one Pentecost and 3,000 were saved on another Pentecost, then maybe they should pay attention. So they've been reaching back into their forefathers, but they've been listening to their founder who said, wait. And now they're being flexible and they're allowing their ideas of Pentecost to change and they're allowing their ideas of the church to change. I like that they're honoring their past. In fact, and then I told you a moment ago, I'm going to tell you why I think they thought the promise would come on Pentecost. Because the Jews didn't just view the feast days as incidental holidays like banks are closed and the kids don't go to school. <laughs> they looked at the feast days as the days when God spoke on his calendar. He did something. So if Jesus died on Passover week and then hung around until 10 days, hung around 40 days, the exact same amount of time that he was in the wilderness and the, the amount of time Israel, 40 years, was in the wilderness and all these 40s. And then Jesus vanishes and they know that they're 10 days from the next feast when the, Holy, when the Spirit of God gave the law to Moses on Sinai. I think they got to Pentecost and knew something was going to happen. They didn't know what it was but they were pretty confident it was going to happen. And I like that they're honoring their roots. The roots of a tree go way down into the ground where the frost can't find it and where most fire can't find it. And why is that important? Because if we go back to our roots, this is why we don't need to just poo-poo everything that's traditional. You know, that's really popular to do. If it's tradition, it sucks. That's stupid. That's not the way to live your life. Just because it's tradition doesn't mean you kick it out. Sometimes you need your roots because it gets below the frost line. And there's going to be frost in this world. I mean, there's going to be times when it's chilly. There's going to be times when you don't have any connection to anything. You don't feel anything. Your roots in, in where you come from and what you came up in and the things you were taught reach way down into soil that is unaffected by the frost of this world and sometimes by the fires of this world. And that's why you can look at a fire field or a frost and life comes out of it eventually because the life was below the surface. And so they have the Feast of Weeks. We have Pentecost as our roots too. And not because we're Pentecostal. I want you to just get rid of that idea tonight, okay? Because we've hijacked that term, all right? It doesn't, even, it doesn't even have a real meaning. For most people, Pentecostal just means shout, cry, say amen, fall down, pray for people to be delivered, tongues, gifts, and in some circles, it's anything goes. It's a cowboy lifestyle, man. You come into church, play loud, play long, stay all day, anything goes, see what happens, you know, and that's called Pentecostalism. And that's cheap. That's a cheap, that's, that's cheapened what is a beautiful thing in the book of Acts that honestly is part of the root system of every single person that ever claims Christ because the church was empowered to breathe at Pentecost. We took our air into our lungs at Pentecost and we hold on to that. So let me walk you through the story. Day of Pentecost fully comes, they're all in one place. They're all thinking alike. I never really liked the old King James. They were all in one mind and one accord. The Greek's not that separated. The Greek is they were all together in the same place thinking alike. There's no, there's no such thing as everybody's in the same mind. We're not even on the same mind in this room. I mean, you're not going to get 120 people in the same mind. But we all do have a same aim. And they're all in that room with the same aim, and that's to receive the promise of the Father. And 
Then comes the Holy Spirit like a rushing mighty wind and sits down on them as cloven tongues of fire. And out of their mouth comes other tongues, other languages that they had unrehearsed and unlearned. And Acts 2 tells us it happens um, in the middle of the feast. And at the feast would have been people from the diaspora, those scattered from all parts of the, the empire who have come into Jerusalem for the feast. And they are from all different kinds of nationalities and all different tongues. And the Bible says in Acts 2 that they could hear their own tongue being spoken on the day of Pentecost. And what was being spoken was the glorious works of God. And that caused everyone to go, what in the world is going on? And so this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, was to proclaim the goodness of God. And in some ways, it was to reverse the Tower of Babel, where God had scattered the tongues of men. And, and Pentecost brings a unity of the tongue of men called the, uni- the sound of the Spirit. And so in the Spirit, we can, we can cross over some of those barriers and begin to speak that sort of that language of love that doesn't just speak one language over the other, one race over the other, one nationality over the other. And Pentecost sort of starts to break that down. Also, notice that it's a rushing mighty wind and there's fire in the house, which are both of the things that John the Baptist said Jesus would do. John the Baptist is dunking people in the Jordan, and he goes, there's one coming after me who's preferred before me, whose shoes I'm not even worthy to take off. I indeed baptize you with water, but the one that's coming shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fan is in his hand and he thoroughly purges his floor and he separates his wheat from his chaff and he gathers the wheat into the barn and he burns the chaff with unquenchable fire. By the way, wheat and chaff are on the same stalk. They're not two different plants. If God separates the wheat from the chaff, the wheat's what you take to market. That's what you eat. The chaff's what nobody wants but they both came from the same stalk. So when God takes the wheat and he separates it from the chaff, he's taking what is good in you and putting it into his own barn. And he's taking what is bad about you and he is burning it up by the fan that's in his hand. Notice at Pentecost, the wind blows and the fire falls because what's happening is that the baptizer with the Holy Ghost has walked into the church and he hasn't left. Jesus steps into the church, steps into your life. You are, you have, you've been baptized with water, but in Christ, you've been baptized into his fire. He isn't done with you. He is still working on you. His fan is still in his hand. He is thoroughly purging your floor. This is why things keep changing in you. This is why he keeps taking stuff out of you. This is why he keeps talking to you. This is why you aren't the same as you were six months ago or six years ago or a decade ago. And you will not be the same in six months from now. As much as you think you've arrived. Oh, I got it. And I've been, there. I've been here so many times. Oh, I got it. There's nothing left to change. And then, oh boy, I didn't even realize that some of this stuff existed. And then the Holy Spirit starts to fan over my life. And that's the way that he works. And this crowd hears them speaking with other tongues and says, these men must be drunk. And Peter goes, oh no, these are not drunk as you suppose. I think this is funny right here. Because in the churches I was raised in, Drinking was like the worst possible sin that you could, almost the worst sin you could commit outside of anything sexual. I mean, almost including sex and marriage, because I mean, that was, you know, we used to talk about sex. Okay, so nothing worse than drinking. And yet, when Peter hears them say, these are, these guys are drunk, Peter doesn't go, these are not drunk as you suppose, they're Christians. These men are not drunk as you suppose. They're believers. No, he says, these men aren't drunk the way you think they are. It's only nine in the morning. 
That's Peter's answer. These men aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning, <laughs> which makes me think it's a good thing it wasn't six in the afternoon because he might have went, well, I don't know. A couple of them could be, but I, trust me, that's not what's going on. It's not the drunkenness. No, it's, it's kind of comical to me that Peter's answer is, oh, they're not drunk. Guys, it's nine in the morning. They'd be a raging alcoholic if they were drunk. It's 9 a.m. And so, no, that, that, that I kind of find humorous now, even though used to, I, I, I just kind of blasted past that, didn't really think about Peter's response, but it's interesting. From there, Peter goes, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then Peter goes on to say that we're going to dream dreams and we're going to have visions and we're going to prophesy. And of course, he gives some eschatological stuff. The moon's going to turn to blood and the sun's going to be darkened in the great and terrible day of the Lord because they believe they were at the end of one era heading into the beginning of another era. And so at the end of one era, he goes, the Holy Spirit is here. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about what you'll do other than have dreams, have visions and prophesy. In other words, you will have supernatural revelation of God because of Pentecost. Because of Pentecost, you get to see things in dreams, you get to see things in visions in the Spirit, and you get to prophesy over your neighbor. That's what Pentecost gives you the power to do according to Peter. Encounters with God as part of the promise. Um, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you something I've had to let go of. And I, I came up, I gave my heart to Christ as a kid. I was in a pastor's home. Um, all I knew was church. Went into ministry at 15. Natasha and I married at 18. We were pastoring a church at 18. I was in full-time itinerant ministry at 20. Um, and then we went through a gazillion jobs and both went to college and, and had kids and circled back, eventually ended up pastoring again in, at about nearly 30 and for over a decade pastored a church. Um, when I was about 13, 12 or 13, our family really had a, a real Pentecostal experience. And for the first time in my life, I started hearing messages on the Holy Ghost. Um, I'd heard about the Holy Spirit. Those, by the way, are the same thing. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. I'm just kind of tongue in cheek. We always called him the Holy Spirit, and then we got around Pentecostals, and he was the Holy Ghost. And uh, there was something, you know, intriguing and fascinating about that to a kid. And we started to attend services where we talked more about the Holy Ghost and started to see the gifts of the Spirit in action, whether it was tongues or prophecy or word of wisdom or word of knowledge. Started attending services where there was more spontaneous moves of the Spirit, vocalization of the Spirit, whether it was through the music or through the preaching. And so somewhere around 12, 13, 14 years old, um, I had my own encounter with the Holy Spirit, really for the first time in my life, a true encounters with the Holy Ghost that really had an impact on me and the way I thought about the Bible and the way I thought about God. And when I went into ministry, those were a lot of the churches that would have me in. And so in my formative years, I was preaching in a lot of Pentecostal churches, a lot of charismatic churches, a lot of non-denominational churches. That's how I met Natasha. Was Pat preaching a youth rally, a non-denominational youth rally, where her, her church was helping sponsor, and that was the kind of church she went to. And those were the kind of encounters that I was having. 
And about 12 years into ministry, about 14 years into ministry, uh, had a real revelation of grace, the love of God. I don't want to get into how all that happened because quite frankly, I still try to wrap my mind around it. And plus it just muddies the waters of the story. But I had a real revelation of grace that God loves me and that he finished the work and I'm making this too hard. And a lot of that was a true revelation. It was truly the Holy Spirit reaching in in my prayer times and my quiet times and saying, son, I love you. This isn't this hard. And I'm going to show you things you haven't seen and seeing stuff in the Bible and starting to change the lens a little bit in my spirit glasses to where I was starting to see Jesus. I was starting to see the finished work, starting to see a loving God. A lot of the things that I'm, that I have foundationally touched me today were birthed there in, in somewhere around 07, right in that time. Um, so we trans started to transition our church because we were classic Pentecostal. And I'm up here preaching grace. And I'm up here preaching the finished work and in the love of God, which doesn't really fly in those kind of circles a lot of times. Something I didn't realize at the time, but I was so green, I didn't care. You just go out. I'd see it that week, get up and preach it on Sunday, which is probably not the best way to do things, but it was all I knew. And I was raised in that church. And so there was a lot of trust. And so the people kind of went with me in this transition. And it's really tough to turn a big boat around. Well, we weren't a big boat yet. We were just kind of a little boat because it wasn't a huge church. Um, and so we start to, to turn that thing around. And over the next two years, that's exactly what happened. Grace, grace, identity, finished work, God loves you. Over and over and over and over. Crucified Christ, you, he's in you, you're in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I could quote 20 verses up and down one side and the other about the grace of God and the righteousness that we had. And I would every now and then sprinkle in sermons about receiving the Holy Ghost and walking in the gifts of the Spirit. Because that's my Pentecostal heritage. One Sunday night, we didn't stop Sunday night services in our church till like late 09. That was when we went to two morning services. The church started growing and growing and growing. We were still in Sunday night church. So I would preach on Sunday morning. I would go to my office on Sunday afternoon about 3 o'clock. Service started at 5. And I'd spend about an hour and a half in the Word just God, give me something for tonight. Sunday nights were hard because you worked all week to get Sunday morning good. And Sunday night was like, what's left? And so, you know, every week. One Sunday night, I'm up and a town, one of the town, I want to remind you, I wasn't in a big town, right? 15,000 people, 25,000 peripheral, not big. One of the town doctors walked in to our church. We're on the wrong side of town. We're literally across the tracks. Um, we're pretty much ignored. You know, we're just that weird church down there that does their Pentecostal thing. But we're starting to make waves because we're preaching grace. And people are starting to, hmm, what's going on down there? What's this young guy up to? And then one of the town doctors comes in and sets on the back row. And I'm gracing it up, man. I'm <laughs> gracing it up. Love of Jesus. Power of God. And... Talked to him afterwards. And I knew a lot of issues in his life, a lot of issues in his practice, a lot of issues. People, I'd heard a lot of stories, but there he was. And the next Sunday, he was back. And the next Sunday, he was back. And he'd stick around a little bit, shake my hand, tell me, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. I've been hearing a lot of things. And I would watch the Holy Spirit do these great things. He started kind of moving up, you know, three quarters of the way back, halfway to the front, every Sunday night. And I'm just grace, 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 the love of God. And I can watch it wash over him. Something's transforming. Like, it's visible, the grace of God, that's changing this man from the inside out. Face is changing. His whole demeanor is changing. And he had been burned in churches and 
heard some kooky and wild stuff. And, and here he was in our place here in Grace. So I go into my office one Sunday afternoon, it's three o'clock, I don't know what I'm going to preach. And I've been nagged that week inside about my old Pentecostal heritage and what I would, those days when I would pray for people to receive the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And that's what I preached. And that was how I preached it. And I sat there in my office that day and thought, you know what this guy needs? You know what he needs more than anything else? He needs an experience with the Holy Ghost. If he would have an experience with the Holy Ghost, it would transform everything. I'm not praying about this. I'm not asking the Lord what we should do. This is what you do. If people start to have an experience with Christ, you introduce them into that next level, next level Pentecost. So where they get the Holy Ghost. And so I went in that night and I preached, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you do, you will speak with other tongues. This is what will happen. I get to the end of the sermon. I call my piano player up. and I've done this, I've done this a thousand times in my life at this point. This was nothing new. And I say, I'm going to call you up here to the front, line you up across the front. We're going to pray for you. We're going to lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and then you're going to begin to speak with tongues because that is the initial physical evidence that you've received the Holy Ghost. And as the first notes of the piano played and, the, and a few people trickled to the front, I watched my doctor friend get up and walk out of the building. And I never saw him again. And I never heard from him again. And him and his family moved just before I moved away from town. And I don't know where he is to this day. And I remember two things went through my mind at the exact same time. If you can believe that that's possible. I do. The first thing that went through my mind was, this is typical of the devil. Right when somebody gets close to having a real move of God, he convinces them that they don't need it. And he gets up and walks out. And the devil's got him another one. But there was another voice in my head that was screaming just as loud or louder that said, something about this just isn't right. And I don't mean something about this isn't right that this guy's walking out. Something about what you're doing right here just isn't right. You're just not smart enough to know what it is yet. And so I buried that incident. I buried it. I didn't think about it. I didn't talk about it. But I also never again preached. Tonight, you need to come up here and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the evidence of speaking to other tongues, because I couldn't preach that that way in good conscience. And I didn't know why. And so I kept preaching identity and grace. That church exploded. We moved campuses. It got 10 times bigger than it was when we were there. God moved. All the metrics of church growth happened. And I still had that little nagging thing in there of not knowing what to do with Pentecost. And I had to go to the Lord recently because what has happened is I've let that go because I knew in my spirit there was more there and I just didn't know what it was. But I didn't go back to the mat and wrestle it out and go, okay, what do I actually do with Pentecost? All I know is what I don't want to do. All I know is what I used to do and what I don't want to do because something's not right. So what do I do? And I had to go to the Lord and Father, forgive me. And it was then when I finally laid that down that the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about, and this was years later, to say, 
you miss the forest for the trees because you turn Pentecost into a formula and Pentecost was already working in this person. Because what was happening is the Holy Spirit was doing what the Holy Spirit does. He was washing this guy every week in the love of God, in identity, in the finished work. But I interfered because I had an idea about what it's supposed to be. And what I did was throw a bunch of stuff up that's works-based. Stay up here until it happens. We'll pray over you until you get. What I wasn't realizing was that I had become formulaic with Pentecost, thinking that it had to be a certain way, done a certain way, and get a certain result. And rightfully, that caused this person to run because what they were seeing was the same old thing they had seen elsewhere, somebody's formula to turn me into some, what somebody wants me to be. When what was actually happening was very gently, very subtly, but very real, the Holy Spirit was doing this great work. He was washing this guy off until he was starting to sense that he was what the Bible said that he was. Now, the reason I had asked the Lord to forgive me is because I know I interfered with that process. And I don't know that I'll ever get that chance back with that individual. So the best I could do is not do something I don't understand anymore. And now where I am on it is that I firmly believe with all of my heart in the gifts of the Spirit and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But I think the gifts and callings of God are gifts. You just ask the Lord for Him and He gifts you with whatever He wants to gift you. And there's no way we can quantify the Holy Spirit through a formula or a prayer or the laying on of hands or a song or a sermon. I don't mock any of it. I don't cut any of it down. But how dare I tell the Holy Spirit what Pentecost looks like? I had it as a doctrine and a theology. The early church had it as a lifestyle. And the lifestyle is the love of God and the grace of God. And presenting that is transformational to people's lives. Now, I've watched that transform lives all over the world, the message of God's grace and His love. And I know that what's happening there is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one doing that work, not Paul's cleverness, my verses. I can't make transformation happen, but I can darn well interfere it. I can interfere with it. I can put my stuff out there and my formulas out there and my ideas and my church churchiness and lay it out there until people are only working to receive something instead of just receiving something. And I'm done with that. I, I am not going to go to church and work for people to get something. God's the giver. We don't twist his arm. We don't fight him. He's the giver. couple things as we land. Pentecost transformed the way they saw the Bible, the way they saw the scriptures is what they might have called them. The internalization of the Holy Spirit allowed them to identify the prophetic in ways that they had been incapable of before. And they could see Jesus in texts where they had missed him. The Spirit provides this even today. I point this out because if the church needs anything, it needs to realize that as they have encounters with God through the agency of the Holy Spirit, through, through love and through, through letting Him wash over them, they will read the Bible differently. And that's a natural part of the church is that we are understanding how to read it, how to comprehend it. Here's why that happens. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you. You can't bear them. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, 
He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he heals, hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He will take what's mine. He'll declare it to you. The part that I, that I always love is verse 12. I'd like to say some stuff to you, but you guys can't handle them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be able to handle them. When did the Holy Spirit come? Day of Pentecost. So let me give you an example of that happening right out of the gate. Listen to Peter in Acts 2. This is, this is the sermon, part of the sermon we skipped. Listen to what Peter says. David says concerning Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Peter is reading from the book of Psalms. He's quoting from the book of Psalms as he preaches. You're not going to leave my soul in Hades. You're not going to allow your Holy One to see corruption. Next verse. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Peter talking now, not quoting. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David is dead. You can go see his bones. That's Peter's statement. Next verse. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. David never mentioned the resurrection of Christ, by the way, in the book of Psalms. But he did. How? Because the next line. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh would see corruption. Brian, can you go back? To where he originally read that one more look at david you will not leave my soul in hades you will not allow your holy one to see corruption i got a feeling that had bugged peter his entire life as he was a kid singing that song in synagogue you will not he's in the grave why is david saying you're not gonna leave me in the grave he's in the grave but the moment he got the holy spirit the moment the holy spirit entered into the church his eyes opened he could he could read the bible differently and he and he said wait a minute i think i got it now go back to that other one Scroll through. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. It's Jesus' soul that's not going to be left in Hades. It's Jesus' flesh that will not see corruption. Peter got that in one second. He had been dwelling with that, wrestling with that his entire life. And when the Holy Spirit entered at Pentecost, he got it. He went, oh, wait a minute. This was never about David. This was always about Christ. This is about a resurrection. This is about something more. For seeing it, his soul not left in Hades, his flesh won't see corruption. 32, this Jesus, God raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and he poured this out, which is what you now see in here. That's, a, that's an incredible insight. He didn't even have time to go study. He just got that from the Holy Spirit because he already had the Bible in him as a base. He already had the scriptures and the Holy Spirit activated that. What's it teach me? teaches me that as we have encounters with God, we start to see the scriptures differently. If the Bible's changing to you, congratulations. It means you're having encounters with God. You're wrestling some things out. The Holy Spirit is doing work. Two things, and I'll let you go. They're long. Pentecost transformed the young church into a powerhouse. We are that powerhouse. We are capable of revelation, and we're able ministers of the new covenant. We still, to this day, remain within the spirit of Pentecost, because Jesus is the baptizer. His fan is still in his hand. He's still purging his floor, gathering his wheat. That's us. Gathering his wheat into his barn and burning the chaff. 
That's the stuff about you that you do not need. The stuff he does not need. And he's doing that with an unquenchable fire. When we relegate Pentecost to worship style, sermon structure, and exhibitions of physical manifestation, we miss the day-to-day permanence of revelation and the endless process of transformation. Do not relegate Pentecost to an event. Example, I was baptized in the Spirit in 1990. This is how we always talked. I was baptized in... You relegate it to an event. That was the only time you were baptized in the Spirit. Rebaptisms in the Spirit happen every time you have an encounter with God. It's not a singular event. That tells me right there you've missed the fan in his hand. He's not still doing his work because you got him still way back there at a church service in 1978 baptizing you one time with the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that was the time you had your first encounter with the Holy Spirit and they never stop. They keep happening over and over. Why? Because his fan's in his hand and he's thoroughly purging his floor. It's not an event. You're invited to constantly eat at his table, which leads me here. Because Pentecost internalized the Holy Spirit, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives come up from within us. These are often stirred by prayer and by the laying on of hands. And we use our gifts wherever we find opportunity and we have to practice. I find no reason to believe the Holy Spirit no longer moves through the gifts. I also see no evidence that the Holy Spirit is trapped inside of the gifts, unable to move if people don't use them. The gifts of the Spirit are His gifts to us, and you can use the gifts of the Spirit, or you don't have to. 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands. You stir it up. That's 2 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 4, don't neglect the gift that is inside of you that was given to you by the laying on of hands. What we ought to be doing and and seeing people stir up the gifts, the the prayer lines we ought to have, you want to call it a prayer line? What we ought to be doing is just praying for people that they have their gift released. Father, show them the gifts that's in them. Show them how to use them. I've never said this part out loud. This is a good place for me to stop. I spent a lot of time laying hands on people to get them to speak in tongues because we were taught that the evidence that they had received the Holy Ghost was speaking in tongues. Paul said that not everyone does. And how we justified that was we went, well, not everybody speaks in tongues in church. We go, but everybody's supposed to when they get the Holy Ghost. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. He goes, if, if, if no one wants tongues, if they want to be ignorant, he goes, let them be ignorant about the gifts. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't cut them down. He doesn't say they're not saved. He doesn't say they don't have an encounter with the Spirit. I think a lot of times what was happening, because you'd lay hands on someone and say, receive the Holy Ghost, and that person would start speaking in tongues. And you'd be like, whoa. That person really knows how to yield. You go to the next person lay hands on them, nothing. So you lay hands on them again, nothing. Pray for an hour. You think I'm crazy? Hours you pray for people. Nothing. People get so desperate they're running fingers over lips. All kinds of foolishness. You have classes on speaking in tongues. You know what the problem was? Is that we were wanting everyone's gift of the Spirit to be universal. And whenever someone didn't release tongues we thought tongues was the only way you could really have the spirit and therefore we wait around till we get some sort of mumble out of them and call that the holy ghost what we ought to be doing is realizing that god's gifts are like the rainbow man in fact in fact peter goes there's manifold multicolored gifts for multicolored people multicolored problems multicolored situations i think there's multicolored gifts paul names a few of them gifts of helps gifts of healings Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues. There's all kinds of stuff. You don't pigeonhole the Holy Spirit. Don't tell him what he has to do with people. 
but encourage people to operate in their gifts. Encourage, and I encourage you, let the Holy Spirit reveal to you the gifts he's given you. You may have never even thought to ask him. It's okay, you can ask him. Hey, Holy Spirit, you and I are on a first name basis. If there's a gift in here that you want to use, that you've put in me, then bring it to the surface and show me what it is and show me how to use it. And you'll be patient as you practice using that gift. And he's not slapping you around if you don't use it. But if Paul had to say to Timothy, don't neglect your gift, it, was hap it happened to you by the laying on of hands, it tells me that we do neglect them sometimes. And just because we neglect them doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't move in the world. He's way more powerful than your inability to use your gift. You come into a service, and go, nobody's got any gifts of the Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. The beauty of congregation and community is that we do get to see the gifts in other people. Now, have we seen that in this room? Maybe not in the way that I would have seen it in my old Pentecostal days, but I can tell you that I leave this room on Tuesday nights a lot of weeks and think, I never saw that before. I never heard that before. I like the way she says that. I like the way he does that. And sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. And I think there, sometimes I think some of those are manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. And that's why God moved in that situation the way that he did. Now, I think we can all practice being more proficient with those gifts. And I wish I had heard that in Pentecost rather than just pigeonholed. Transformed by Pentecost, not once, all the time. Let's pray that, that Father transforms us by Pentecost actively, all right? I'm going to ask you to pray two things, and I don't want you to just stop tonight. Put this in your prayer. Pray this all week. First of all, that the one whose fan is in his hand will thoroughly purge your floor. Just br brush over my spirit, Father. Whatever's chaff, burn it up. I don't need it. And two, whatever gift you give me. We being evil know how to give good gifts. How much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Okay, Lord, I'm asking you. Give me fillings of your Holy Spirit, whatever you want that to look like, and whatever gifts you have put in me, show me and teach me how to cultivate them for the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Take that with you.